I brought a little prop with me this morning. As most of you know in here, I'm actually a home builder by trade. That's what I do during the day. God's called me to preach, but I support that ministry that he's given to me by building homes. And I do several of those every year. And whenever we begin the process of building a new home for someone, we always start with a plan. And that's what I've brought this morning here. I have a set of plans that we've developed for building a new home. And this plan is made up of many parts. It's made up of several parts. And each one of the parts that are in this plan contribute to the whole. I have several pages here on this plan. I have a foundation plan, which shows me the foundation that I need to put in for the house, for the house to rest on and to stand the test of time. I also have a floor plan page, and it shows me the different rooms that go in a home, and it shows me the layout, and it shows me the room sizes and dimensions and what it should look like on the inside. But I also have a roof plan and an elevation plan. And these show me what the house is going to look like on the outside. It's going to show me the different room sizes. It's going to show me the roof pitches. It's going to show me what the exterior walls and windows will look like. And all of this diff information that's contained in one of these sets of plans contributes to the whole thing. For I can't build an entire house without all of the requisite parts. If I didn't have a roof plan, I wouldn't know how to build a roof, what it should look like on the house. If I didn't have a foundation plan, I couldn't put in a foundation. I wouldn't have anywhere to begin. So all of the parts contribute to the whole, and they're all necessary to build a home. Now, that's what I do. I build homes. But God is building something different. God is building a kingdom. And what we're going to look at today is his plan for his kingdom. And we're going to explore that plan in John chapter 3 this morning. We're going to see how God is working his plan of salvation. And he is accomplishing building his kingdom through the salvation of men. And that salvation of men is accomplished by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's where we're going to spend our time today. We're going to talk about this amazing plan, this gracious plan that God has developed. And before he ever laid the foundations of the world, he put into place so that we could be saved. We're going to explore those truths today. We're going to take a look inward at ourselves. We're going to explore ourselves and see where we stand. Do we really know that we know? Are we sure that we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? We're going to explore that today. But I want to give you just a little bit of background first as we begin, because anytime you're going to open up the Word, you're going to explore the Bible, you want to know what the context is of the passage you're looking at. And we're looking at a very short passage this morning, just three verses. And it comes at the end of a dialogue that's going on between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. It comes in John chapter 3, and what we know about Nicodemus is that he's a Pharisee, he belongs to the Sanhedrin, he's a member of the religious elite. And he comes to Jesus because he's been seeing the signs and the wonders that Jesus has been performing. And he's heard the teaching that Jesus has been espousing. And he recognizes that this man is somewhat different. He's not like other people. He's teaching something far different. And the signs that he's doing are indicating to Nicodemus that this man must be from God. But because of his position, because of who he is in the religious order, he comes to Jesus in the evening. He comes under the cover of darkness fearing reprisals from his friends and, and, and cohorts, he comes to Jesus at night, seeking to find out just a little bit more about him and who he is. And he comes to Jesus and he begins to enter into a dialogue with him and he begins to talk about the things that Jesus has done. And he calls him a rabbi, a term of respect. He calls him teacher. He says, we've heard of the teaching that you're doing. We've also seen the signs that you're doing. And we recognize that you must be from God, that you've come from God. And he's Not asking a question per se, but he's implying one. And he's trying to ask Jesus, just who really are you? Are you from God? Are you the one? That's the question that he wants to ask. But before he can get the question out, Jesus interrupts him. And he interjects this comment here. He says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. 
comes completely out of the blue and it catches Nicodemus by surprise. He begins to wonder to himself what, what is referred to by this comment. And he asks Jesus, he says, I don't think I understand you correctly. What is it that you're saying? Are you saying that a man must enter into his womb, mother's womb and be born in yet a second time? And Jesus again declines to answer his comment, comment and he says that you must be born of water and spirit. And he's telling Nicodemus the truth of God's kingdom. He's telling him that a new birth is required, a rebirth is required. And he's indicating to Nicodemus that that's, that rebirth is only accomplished by the Spirit of God. Nicodemus is a Pharisee and functioning within this tight religious order, this ultra-conservative group, was used to following the, the commands of the Mosaic law. They were very famous for the way that they followed all of the laws down to the letter, down to the T. And they functioned inside of this system, and they believed that this way in which they lived their lives according to this law was going to get them into the kingdom of God. Jesus confronts that thinking. He confronts the spiritual condition of Nicodemus right there on the spot. He says, if you really want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. He tells him that there must be a new birth to take place. And he tells him that that new birth can only take place through the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit is the only one who can transform people. Man can't do it himself. No matter how hard man tries, no matter how many laws and rules and regulations and stipulations he obeys, man can never save himself. He can never be good enough to earn his way into God's kingdom. And that's the truth that Jesus communicates to Nicodemus in this passage. And as we come to our focal passage today, Jesus is going to go ahead and reveal to him God's plan for salvation. What it looks like to be born again. How to become born again. That's where we're going to pick up our study this morning. We're going to be beginning in, in verse 16 here. We're going to look at, I guess, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. Most of you probably know it. I'll tell you, I, had, I struggled with it a little bit here the last couple of weeks working on it because when I learned this verse as a kid, it was in the King James English, and that's not what I'm preaching from today. So if you catch me slip, that's why. But uh, it is a famous one. Most of us learned it as a kid. Most of us can probably recite it without even having it printed in front of us. But for the purposes of our discussion today, we want to look at this passage, these three verses, in terms of God's grand plan. And God's grand plan is, is that he's building his kingdom, and he's doing it through the salvation of men. And like that blueprint, like that house plan that I showed you a moment ago, God's plan has several different parts. And we're going to look at those parts today, and we're going to see how each one of those parts is integral to this plan that God has developed for our salvation. We're going to see that each one is necessary, and without all of them, Salvation is not accomplished, that each of the people involved have a part to play, and each of the truths involved have importance in our lives. And we're going to look at that. The first truth that we're going to see this morning is the motive of the Father. Why did God do all of this? Because he loves the world. God loves the world. He developed the plan of salvation because he loves the world. He loves you and I. Verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We see that God's plan is motivated by love. God looked and saw the world and was motivated out of a love for that world. He looked at a world that he originally created way back in the beginning in Genesis 1.1. God created the heavens and the earth and he created man. And you all remember the story, man quickly corrupted that creation that God had made. Sin entered the world and it marred God's creation and we began a downward spiral to where we are today. But God, knowing what would happen not being caught off guard by the sin that entered the world, not knowing what had happened, had already made a plan. He had already determined that he was going to love the world and he was going to demonstrate that that love to the world through Jesus. He was going to send Jesus. God loves the world in the same way that you and I would probably love a wayward child. 
If you haven't had one, you've, I'm sure, known somebody that has. And we watch wayward children make bad decisions, and we watch them make poor choices that have very bad consequences for their lives. And while we can't abide their behavior and the choices that they make, and they, they cause us pain, and they cause us anguish, and we can't bless the choices that they've made because of the consequences that will come from them, we still love them. They're still our children. And we still love them. Deep down inside, there's still a love there. And we're hoping for their repentance. We're hoping for their turning. In the same way, God is looking at the world here. And he knew that the world would be sinful. He knew that we would make the mistakes that we've made. And God can't abide our mistakes. And that's caused a separation between us and him. But he's made a way that we can be reconciled. Because he still loves us. Like he would love a wayward child, he still loves us. And this plan that he's put into effect has been here for all time. Ephesians 1 tells us that God has put this plan of salvation into effect before he ever even laid the foundations of the earth. Before he ever even created you and I and before sin ever entered the picture, God already had a plan. It's important that we understand that God's sending the Savior into the world, that it's God's sending Jesus into the world was not a plan B. It was not a backup plan. God was not caught off guard. He was not surprised. He knew what would happen, and he had already made plans to save us anyway. Now, there's several parts of this love that I want to explore with you this morning. We're going to look at them fairly quickly here. The first one is the definition of God's love. We talk about this love that God has for man, that God has for people. What are we talking about? Because most often when you and I as humans think of love, we typically think of love as a feeling, do we not? It's something that we feel from a spouse or a friend or a child or something like that. It's a feeling. But when the Bible talks about God's love, it's not talking about a feeling. It's talking about an action. God's love is an action. He loved the world. He was pained over the sin that was in the world, and he took action to mitigate it. He made a plan in order for us to be saved. His love is not self-centered. It's an unconditional type of love. What do I mean by that? Well, the, the type of love that you and I have for other people and for things is a conditional type of love. It's based on their performance or their behavior, or their loving us back. But God's love is not that way. God's love is unconditional. God doesn't need anything from us. He's wholly complete within himself. He needs nothing from you and I to complete him. So he can love us and love the world, as we say, unconditionally. There's nothing that he needs, and it's an unconditional kind of love. It's a sacrificial type of love as well. As we're going to see here in just a moment, the way God demonstrated his love was by doing something, and it was by giving something. And that thing that he gave was Jesus. He gave Jesus to the world. He sacrificed something of his own because he loved us. That's a type of love that you and I are not capable of. We need to remember that God's love is an action. It's not just a professed thing. It's not a said statement. It's not a feeling. God's love is an action. 1 John 4, 9 tells us that in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. How did God love the world? By sending Jesus. The literal translation of that passage, the word so in that passage, for God so loved, means in this way. God loved the world in this way, by sending Jesus. It wasn't a feeling that he projected. It wasn't something he told us about. It was something that he did. He sent Christ for us. Secondly, we see the direction of God's love. Where is that love directed? The passage says, for God so loved the world. His love is directed toward the world. And we need to understand what he means by the world in order to grasp the full meaning of this text. When the Bible talks about the world, it's got two things in mind. Number one, we want to remember context. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee. These are two Jews having a conversation. And when they talk about the world, they're not talking about God's chosen people, the nation Israel. 
They're talking about everybody else. They're talking about Gentiles. They're talking about the world. Everybody outside of that special people of God. So when the passage says that for God so loved the world, it's talking about not God's chosen ones, but the unchosen. We also need to remember that when the Bible talks about the world, that concept is always juxtaposed over against godly things. We have godly things over here. We have worldly things over here. We have the things of God. We have the pursuits of the world, the love of the world, the lust of the world, all of those things. The world is always a picture of sin when you read the Bible. It's talking about sin. So we see that God's love is directed toward sinners. It's directed toward the world. It's directed toward all of us. And all of us are sinners, make no mistake. But God's love is directed toward us. Man is not to love the world. The Bible tells us that Christians are not to love the world, that we're to abstain from the things of the world, to flee the world, to not engage in the passions and the lust of the world. Because why? Because they will change us. They will make us different. They will have an effect on us. They will draw us, draw us in to what they are. But God can love the world because God is above the world. As I said a moment ago, he's not in a position where he needs anything from the world. He sees everything clearly. He sees everything purely. And he's able to love the world in that way because he knows exactly what you and I need. As sinners and lost and fallen people, God knows exactly what we need and he's able to direct his love toward us to accomplish that end. Thirdly, we see the direction, or excuse me, the demonstration of God's love. Not only does God love sinners, not only is that love directed towards sinful people, but God is going to demonstrate this love to people with an action. There's at least four ways that God does that. They're here in this passage. We're going to talk about those. There's several more, but we're only going to cover these four this morning. There's four ways that God demonstrates his love to us. Number one, he demonstrates his love to us in a person. God didn't send us an email, shoot us a text, mail us a letter to tell us that he loved us. He gave us the Bible. It's printed here, but what, that is a record of what God had already done. God sent a person, and God sent his best. The world was lost and broken. God's creation had become fallen. It had become marred by sin, but God sent his best into the world to rectify that, to take care of the problem of sin, to deal with the sin of you and I. God sent Jesus. He sent someone in a person. He sent, us, he sent him to us in order that we might be saved. God didn't just make a plan. He sent a person. John 4.10 tells us that in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God demonstrated his love by sending us a savior. He looked at what our root problem is, and our root problem is our sin. We're broken, we're lost, we're sinful. God sees that, and he provided the way out. That's how God always comes to us. That's how God meets us. He deals with our sin condition first. If you don't yet know him as your savior, that's how God or how Christ will encounter you. He will meet you at that level at your deepest need, your level of sin, because that must be dealt with first in order to come into relationship with God. A lot of us think that if we can just clean up our lives and make ourselves better and, and, and be better at obeying, that we can somehow earn our way into the presence of God or into relationship with God. But God tells us in this passage here that no, God meets us through Christ. He meets us in a person and he meets us at our deepest level. He meets us at our level of need, which is our sin. We want to see also that he demonstrates his love at a price. It costs God something to love us. It cost him something. And the passage tells us that it cost him Jesus. It said he gave his only son the word gave is the operative word in that short passage there. It's the verb. It tells us what's going on. It's telling us what happened. The idea here is not that God just sent his son, but rather that he gave him, that he surrendered him, that he gave him up, that he sacrificed him for the world. 
He gave his son to the world. As we all know, or as most of us know, he came not here to just proclaim a message and then to leave, but rather he came here to proclaim a message and then go to a cross and die to pay the penalty for our sin. There was a price involved in that. God sacrificed his only son. He gave up his most precious possessions so that we may live. God paid a price. Christ paid a price on that cross. We all remember the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on that night before his crucifixion when the Bible tells us that he was sweating great drops of blood over the anguish of the things that were going to soon happen. And he says to the Lord, and he cries out in his anguish, he says, Lord, if there's any other way, if this cup can pass from me, I don't want to do this. If there's any other way, let it pass. But nevertheless, he says, not my will be done, but yours. Because you've determined that this is the way that it's going to be, and this is the way that it's going to work. I'm going to accede to your will. I'm going to follow your plan, and I'm going to do what you've commanded. It cost him something, and it cost God the Father something. God's love is also given for a purpose. What is the purpose? The Bible says that whoever believes should not perish. God gave Jesus so that we wouldn't perish. God gave Jesus so that sinners could live. There's a purpose in that. God is desiring of relationship with us, but because of our sin condition, we are separated and broken. As the song said a moment ago, we are completely broken. But God has provided Jesus as a way to redeem us, as a way to save us, and as a way to reconcile us back to him. God gave Jesus to save sinners from death. We know that sin entered the picture in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3 tells us that God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and he charged them with taking care of the garden and tending the garden and he gives them one command. He says, whatever you do, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And of course, we all know it didn't take long. Adam and Eve gave right in, ate the fruit. And at that moment, the Bible says their eyes were open and they were aware that they were naked. Nakedness is always a picture of sin in the Bible. You look at nakedness, it's a picture of sin. They realized on that moment that they were sinful that they had committed an egregious rebellion against God. It was at that point that sin entered God's creation, and along with that came death. Death followed sin. It came into the creation at that point. And we know from Romans 5 that that sin that Adam committed was passed on to each and every one of us. We've all inherited a sin nature from our father Adam. It's been passed down to us where we are all sinful. We are born in iniquity. We are conceived in iniquity. We are guilty from the moment that we're born. But lest we think that we've inherited something we didn't deserve, the Bible also tells us in Romans 3.23 that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not only were we conceived and born in iniquity, but as soon as we were able, we ratified that sin condition. As soon as we were able, at our youngest of age, we ratified that sin condition. If you don't believe me, have you ever seen a two-year-old throw a temper tantrum? Okay, that's a, that's a sin right there. As soon as we were able, before we even realize it, we ratify that sin condition. But God has made a way for us to be saved. Romans 5 says we inherited a sin condition. Romans 3 says that we all have all sinned. Romans 6 tells us that the wages of that sin is death. We deserve death because of our rebellion against God, because of our sin against God. And make no mistake, that's what sin is. That's what all sin is. It's a rebellion against God. A lot of us have the idea and the understanding that our little sins don't matter. But the Bible talks in much different terms. It tells us that even the smallest of sin is rebellion against God. It's rejecting his authority in my life. It's putting something else ahead of God in my life. And the Bible calls that rebellion. And that sin that I commit when I do that brings about death. But the beauty is that John 3.16 tells us that God has made a way for us to be saved. Even though we've done all of these things, we've eternally separated ourselves from God because of our sin, God made a way for us to be saved. 
And that's where we come to the next part of our passage. We see that God's love also comes with a promise. The end of verse 16 says, Not only shall they not perish, but they'll inherit eternal life. Eternal life is what we get as God's promised us for those who, what? Believe is what the passage says. And we're going to explore that concept of belief here in just a few moments and talk about all that that involves. But we want to be careful to understand here that belief is not something that just involves giving intellectual assent to a certain set of facts. It's not enough to believe that God exists. It's not enough to believe that Jesus came to the world. It's not enough to even believe that Jesus died on a cross for my sin or that God resurrected him. Those are all facts and those all must be believed as part of the gospel. But simply agreeing that they occurred is not what the Bible has in mind here. What the Bible has in mind when it's talking about belief is understanding that I am broken and lost in my sin and the only way out of that sin is through Christ. I have to turn to him in repentance from my sin and say, Christ, you take my sin. I can't do it. I can't do it on my own. Trusting him, knowing that he has paid that penalty for our sin and believing in his ability to save us, to resurrect us, is what saving faith is. So when the passage says to believe, we need to be clear and understand that it's not just agreeing to these facts that occurred. It's a something wholly different. The promise is eternal life for those who believe, for those who trust, for those who put their faith in Christ. Eternal life is what is promised the passage in Romans 10, 9 tells us, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We see that that passage is promising that, that deliverance to us, that resurrection. It's promising that eternal life. Eternal life, however, we need to realize is not just living forever. I think most of us have the understanding or the belief that eternal life is just living an endless succession of days in a place called heaven with God where we'll just, you know, hang out on clouds or whatever and day after day after day, there's no time, there's no calendar, there's no schedule to keep. While that's partly true, what the Bible really has in mind when it talks about eternal life, let's look over at John 10, 28, or excuse me, John 17, 3. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Christ identified eternal life as something far different from the concept that I think most of us have regarding eternal life. He said eternal life is knowing God and knowing the one he sent. Eternal life is coming into a fuller and more complete relationship with Jesus. It's understanding who he is, what he came to do, why he's here, appropriating that for myself, and then enjoying the benefits thereof. It's coming into knowing God in a much deeper and fuller way than we're capable of doing right now as we live here on this earth. Though we know God if we're saved, though we know Christ if we're saved, we don't have a clue as to his completeness and his greatness and his fullness while we live here on this earth. It's only when we join him in eternity that that full revelation will come, that we will know him in his entirety. We will realize who he is completely and fully. We've seen here through this first passage, through this first verse, that God's love is the motivating factor here. In love, God sent Christ. In love, God gave Christ up at a price. In love, God gave Christ to those who believe. And those who believe inherit eternal life. They escape death. They escape condemnation and all of these other things. It's God's love that was the motivating factor. God's love was the foundation to this plan. Without that, nothing would have come about. But what we need to understand, in the same way that the foundation needs to be laid, there are other things that need to be accomplished as well. That plan laying right over there that I showed you a minute ago is just an idea until somebody puts it into action. 
That's not a house laying there. That's an idea. God's plan of salvation is the most glorious plan in the history of mankind, the history of the universe. But until someone put it into action, it doesn't really gain us anything. And that's what we're going to see next. We're going to see how Jesus was the one who put God's plan into action. The mission of the Son. He came here to save sinners. He came here to save you and I. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The love of the Father was the motivation, but the mission of the Son actually accomplished the plan. If Christ didn't come, the plan never could have happened. God developed the plan. He sent Christ into the world, but if Christ never came, if Christ rejected that cup, as it were, our salvation never would have been earned. It was his action that had to accomplish it. God's love always comes in an action. Plans are only ideas until somebody puts them into action. We need to remember that. There's several aspects of the mission of the Son I want to explore with you today. We want to understand, first and foremost, that Jesus came to save sinners. That was his mission. That was why God sent him here. But we also want to understand that he was, in fact, sent by God. Because this was a question that they had in the early church in the first century. Was Jesus really sent by God? And there were several interactions, if you look through the book of John, where Jesus is talking and dialoguing with different religious groups and the Pharisees and so forth, and they question who he is and really where he came from. That was the question that was on the mind of Nicodemus when he came to him at night. Who, who are you really? Who sent you here? Are you the one? In fact, he was. He was the one that God sent in order to save sinners. I want to look first at his commission with you. God commissioned Christ to come into the world. The passage says, for God did not send his son, or the passage is framed in the negative, but the intent is the same. God is the one who sent Christ into the world. God sent him here for us. He sent him here to save us. Defined, what does commission mean? Commission simply means someone who gives an order or gives authority to someone or something. We want to understand that God is the one who gave the authority to Christ. God developed the plan of salvation. He, he authorized Christ to come into the world to carry it out. He is the one who sent him. What we also want to understand from this is that if we, look, if we look at what's going on in the news today, we see a lot of things going on with ISIS and with terrorist attacks and all kinds of trouble going on in the Middle East. And I was noticing something oh, last week when I was watching the news. I noticed that you can tell the intensity level of the situation by who gets sent to deal with the problem. Have you ever noticed that? If there's a small flare-up, you know, they send like somebody from the State Department over there. Or if it's a little bigger, maybe they send an ambassador and they go over and try and deal with whatever the problem is. But if you've got a really big problem, who gets sent? They send the Secretary of State, maybe in the, even the Vice President. The intensity of the situation, the seriousness of the situation dictates who gets sent to deal with the problem. That's what we see in the commissioning of Christ here. God didn't send second best. He didn't have an alternate plan. God sent his best. He sent the top man. He sent number one into the world to deal with the problem of sin because that's how grave and how serious the issue of sin is. It's no small thing. It's no small fire to be put out. It's a raging forest fire that has consumed the entire earth. It's touched every single one of us. And God sent the one person who was capable and able to deal with it. He sent Jesus. We also see in this passage his call. We see that his call was not to condemn the world. Believe it or not, Christ didn't come to condemn this world. He didn't come to judge this world. The passage says he didn't come to do that at all. The world has condemned itself. The world is guilty of sin. The world stands condemned as we stand here now. Christ didn't need to come and pronounce that judgment. That judgment already rests on all of us. It rests on you and I. 
His call was not to come to condemn the world. He says in John 12, 47, Jesus speaking here, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world. That's not the reason that he came here. And so consequently, we see his charge. What is the real reason that he came? He came in order that the world might be saved. The end of that verse in John 12, 47 says, For I did not come to judge the world, but rather to save it. God didn't send him here to judge you and I. He didn't send him here to punish you and I. He sent him here to save you and I. If we will only believe, he sent him here to save us if we will only believe. Jesus came in order to save the world and that salvation was accomplished by his cross. Jesus didn't come and simply proclaim a message. He didn't come and just give us good wishes. He didn't do anything like that. Jesus came and he paid a price. He came and he was born in a stable. He was born to a virgin. He came and he lived a sinless life here. He committed three years of his life to ministry, to proclaiming the kingdom of God before the task, the cross would come his way. He was drugged into a court where he was tried. He was convicted by the Roman government and he was sent off to die on a tree. Before that, they spit on him. They beat him. They forced him to carry a cross up a tree. And when they got to the top of that hill, they hung him on that tree. They nailed his hands and feet with spikes and hung him on that tree and left him there to die. That was the price that Christ paid in order to earn our salvation. Salvation isn't cheap. We always want to remember that. It cost God something. It cost God everything to earn our salvation, to make our salvation. Salvation isn't cheap. Too often, I think, that too many of us take that for granted. We don't look at the seriousness of the situation. We don't look at how expensive it was what it cost God in order to save us. I think if we spent more time reflecting on the seriousness of the cross and the painfulness of the cross, we would see just how serious and how painful our sin is to God. Too often I think we want to gloss over our sin and sweep it under the rug and pretend like it doesn't really matter. Well, my sin's not as bad as his sin or her sin. It doesn't really bother God that much. It's become so common now that God shouldn't even be bothered by it. Everybody does it. It's no big deal. But you need to remember that God sent Jesus to die on that cross for your sin, for my sin. He sent him to die for one sin. If it had only been one, God still would have sent him to pay for that one sin. That's how expensive the cross was. That is how important it is that we understand how serious our sin is against God. It's not a small thing. We also see here, finally... The message for the world. We've seen so far what God has done. God has made a plan. He's ordained this plan since the beginning of the foundations of the world. He's made a plan. He sent Christ to carry out that plan. In love, he sent his one and only son to die to pay the penalty for our sin. The sin that you and I commit each and every day. The sin that we were born with and the sin that we live with each and every day. And now God is calling on sinners to repent. With this plan comes a response that's required from us. Will we believe in him? The Bible says there's only one way that we must believe. It doesn't give any other option. It doesn't give any other backup plan. Belief is the only way that our salvation can be achieved. Verse 18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is where we see the response that's required on our part. We must believe. And we're going to explore a little more what that belief means. 
We spoke a moment ago about how belief is not just simply agreeing intellectually to a set of facts that occurred about Jesus' life, but rather it's placing our full faith and trust in him who is able to save us. The word in the original language carries with it the idea of a complete trust, complete faith in. There's not any room for doubt. There's not any room for error here. It's a complete and full trust. To believe means to trust that Christ is able to save me from my sin. That he has the power to be able to do it. That he has the power to be able to present that new birth to me. That I can be regenerated because of Christ. God's plan of redemption is proclaimed to all. We saw that a moment ago. His love went out to the world. It went out to everybody of all nations. Jew, Gentile, of every nation, race, language. The word is proclaimed to all. But salvation is determined by our faith. The word is proclaimed to a whole lot of people. But not all will believe. Belief is more than an intellectual assent. It's a complete trust in him. But despite this fact, despite this truth, not all people will believe. Not all will trust Christ as their Savior. The Bible tells this plainly and tells us this up front, that not all will believe. There are going to be two groups here that this passage is going to discuss. Verse 18 talks about two different groups. It talks about those who will believe and those who won't believe, those who refuse to believe. And we're going to see that there's two groups that have two far different destinies, two far different results coming from their decision to believe or to not believe. First, we see the possession of the believer. Verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. There's no condemnation coming for those who believe. Though we are spiritually dead, though we are under God's condemnation because of the sin that's in our life, because of our sin nature that we inherited from Adam. When we come to place our faith and trust in Christ, we're excused from that condemnation. We're excused from that judgment. We're given a pardon. We need to understand that it's not like we are a bunch of people awaiting trial. You know, the American judicial system has put forth the idea that everyone is innocent until proven guilty. And that's, you know, a wonderful thing in terms of a legal system. But the Bible never talks about it that way. The Bible talks about all people as being guilty until pardoned by Christ. That's how we need to look at it. And the possession of the believer is, is that when I come to place my faith and trust in him, I am pardoned. I receive that pardon. All condemnation is now gone. I'm not a person who's standing and awaiting trial. I'm someone who's already been convicted and I'm over here on death row and I'm just waiting for the warden's footsteps to come down the hall. But at that last minute, when I place my faith and trust in Christ, that pardon comes in. That pardon comes through. I can be excused from the condemnation that's coming. And make no mistake, that condemnation is not something that's small or something that's slight. That condemnation is what we know as hell. And it's not very popular to preach on hell these days. People don't want to hear about hell. Uh, you know, I've heard a few polls that have been taking place that a majority of Christians today don't even believe in the concept of hell. But I tell you, if you read this book from front to back, you're going to become very acquainted with hell. Jesus spoke on it often. Talked many times about how those who wouldn't believe would inherit hell. Not eternity with him, but rather hell. The possession of the believer is, is they miss out on all of that. They're pardoned from that. If you as a, as a believer will turn to Christ and place your faith and trust in him, hell is not something that's waiting for you. You're excused from all condemnation, from all judgment. Belief in Christ gives us assurance. We need to understand that. It's a lot easier to operate my daily life if I know that I'm saved and I know that there's no condemnation and I know that there's no judgment for me, is it not? Jesus promised believers in John 5, 24, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. 
Because we are spiritually dead, because we are spiritually separated from God, we need someone to stand in the gap, somebody to come in and bridge the gap between us and God. Our sin has caused a great divide between the two of us, and Jesus is the one that fills that gap. Jesus says that when I come and when you believe in me, you pass over from death into life. Life is found in Christ. It's found in placing our faith and trust in him. Our life is found in him. But there's a flip side to this coin, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. We're going to talk about the position of the unbeliever. The position of the unbeliever. There's a couple aspects here I want to explore with you. Number one, we want to see the condition of the unbeliever. What is the condition? As we said a moment ago, any of those who have not placed their faith and trust in Christ are spiritually dead. That's how the Bible talks about us. It talks about us as if we are dead people. Our sin has caused a spiritual death. When God said to Adam, the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die, this is what he had in mind, our spiritual death, that we would be separated from God because of our sin. That is our condition. We are born with that condition. We live our lives in sin. We ratify that sin condition, and, and we live that way. That is who we are. We are dead. That's why earlier in the passage with Nicodemus, Christ told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again. He had been born once. He had, he had experienced a physical birth, but he was spiritually dead. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need a rebirth. You need a regeneration. You need to become, become something that you weren't before. You need to be brought to life. And the person who brings you to life, the person who's able to do that is the Spirit of God. He says that you must be born of water and the Spirit. You must be born of the Spirit, meaning you must be regenerated. That new birth must take place. You must be born of water, meaning you must be washed. You must be cleansed. Both of those things are things that the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God transforms and cleanses sinful dead people and makes them spiritually alive. But those who reject Christ are not that way. They remain dead, spiritually dead. Jesus did not come into a neutral world. We need to remember that. I think the common idea today is that we're all doing pretty good. We're all doing pretty average. And if my good outweighs my bad, that's my ticket into heaven. The Bible never speaks of it that way. The Bible never says that Jesus came into a neutral world. The Bible says that when God looked on the world, when he looked out and he saw his creation and he saw all of his people, what he saw was a bunch of spiritual corpses out there. Every single one of them tainted by sin. It was not a neutral world. None of us are innocent until proven guilty, but rather we're all guilty until the pardon comes in. That's our condition. That is what God sent Jesus into. He sent him into a dead world to revive some. Ephesians 2 talks about our very condition. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus there commented on this very fact, how God views us, how we are to be viewed. Verses 1 through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in once in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Those are pretty strong words from the apostle, communicating that truth that we are spiritually dead, that in fact we are children of wrath. We are deserving of God's wrath because of our sin condition. That was the world that God sent Christ into. That's the world that we live in today. A bunch of spiritual dead people walking around not knowing that they're lost. 
But the beauty of our study today is that God has made a way. Though we are dead, God has made a way for us to be revived, for us to be brought to life, and that is through Jesus Christ. We also want to see here, unless we be guilty of accusing God of unfairness, we want to see that though we are spiritually dead, though we are born that way, and though we live our lives in a sinful way, it's not something that we received unfairly. Because we see here that the unbeliever consents to his condition. There's a consent here. Don't forget the end of this passage in verse 18. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Not only are we spiritually dead, not only are we unable to do anything for ourselves on our own, but when God has made a way, when God has sent Jesus, when he has sent Christ into the world in order to be able to save us, what have we done? We've rejected him. That's what the Bible's communicating here with that truth. It says, even when God sent him to you and the truth was proclaimed to you, still you rejected Still, you refuse the truth. You refuse to accept the provision that God had made in your life. And I believe that that's where we are today. The issue today is not that people are uneducated or they're not familiar with the Bible or, or its truths or anything like that. The problem is, is that we are rejecting what God has sent to us. We make a willful rejection of the Savior that God has sent into the world. And until we change our way of thinking, until we are regenerated and God does something in us, we are never going to turn to him and be saved. The problem is, is that we are rejecting. We have rejected what God has sent. The unbeliever ratifies his lost condition by rejecting the Savior that God has sent. And we need to understand that what they're rejecting is Jesus. They're rejecting what God has, they're rejecting the provision that God has made through Jesus. Believing in the name is, is the, the idea of names is something that's a little foreign to us in this day and age, but in the time that the scriptures were written, the idea of a name was something that it carried, that carried with it the character or the personality of a person. When a name was given to someone, it, it encompassed their character, their personality, their abilities, the things they were to do. So when the Bible says here in this passage they're rejecting the name of the Son of God, it means they're rejecting all that Jesus stood for. They're not only rejecting him, but they're rejecting everything that he stood for. They're rejecting that olive branch that God has now extended through Christ. They're looking back at God and waving their finger in his face and saying, no, I don't want it. We want to understand that God is never guilty of unfairness. God has made opportunity available, but man has willfully rejected. And God is going to hold man responsible for that decision. And he's going to hold man responsible for that decision in a place called hell. As a minute ago, I said, hell is not a popular thing to preach on these days. Sin is not a popular thing to preach on these days. Most people don't want to hear about it. They don't want to hear about their sin, and they certainly don't want to hear about hell. But I'm here to tell you, as uncomfortable it is and unpleasant it is, if you are sitting here today, if you're sitting in one of these chairs and you don't know Christ as your Savior today, you're going to hell. That is your destiny. That is your eternity. The Bible says that you are already condemned you already stand condemned. We're not awaiting a future trial. There will be no weighing of your good and your bad. Judgment has been passed. That's why Christ could say, I didn't come to judge the world because the judgment is already done. It's already been passed. We're simply sinners awaiting execution. And if you're sitting here today and you haven't come to know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you're headed toward that execution. You are headed toward hell. But I want you to remember that God has made a way. God has made a way for you to be saved from that. The question becomes, are you going to continue to reject that way? Are you going to continue to reject the provision that God has made for you? In a moment, we're going to have an invitation. We're going to have 
an opportunity for you to spend some time visiting with the Lord. We're going to talk about what it means to be saved. We're going to talk about what it means, how to become saved. But right now, I would like to just take a moment, and I would like to ask you to bow your heads and just take a moment and seek the Lord and just talk to him about your condition. Talk to him about who you are. If you're already a saved believer here today, spend a little time praising God for the salvation that he's brought into your life. But if you're not and you don't know him as a Christ follower, I'd like you to spend a little time, just a moment in prayer. I'm going to give you about 60 seconds here, and then I'm going to conclude. Heavenly Father, we come to you today with heavy hearts because we know, God, there are people in your sanctuary this morning who haven't yet come to know you. And that breaks our hearts as it breaks yours. God, we know that you've made a way, you've made a provision. You've made a way to be saved. But people are still rejecting God, we pray for your presence among us here this morning. We pray for the movement of your spirit as we enter now into this time of invitation. We pray, God, that your spirit will move amongst those who haven't yet come to know you. That your spirit will begin that work of regeneration, that work of transformation. And will begin to bring about the changes in their life that are necessary. We pray, God, that you bring faith into the lives and into the hearts of these people through the regeneration process. God, if there are any here today who haven't yet come to know you, God, we just pray for your intercession in, in their lives. As we continue to pray here today and remain with your heads bowed, I'd like you to just think for a moment about all the times that you've heard this message proclaimed, all the times that you've heard these words proclaimed, that the only way to be saved is through Jesus. And all the times that you've rejected that message. What will it take? It's the question that I asked today. What will it take for you to give in and receive what God is freely offering to you today? God is an amazing God and he can do anything and he can transform anyone. And he's waiting to transform you. That stirring that you feel in your heart, that you feel in your chest, that anxiety that you're feeling now, that's the Spirit of God working inside of you right now. I would encourage you, when we sing our song here in just a moment, to respond to whatever the Spirit of God is leading you to do. The message is over. The message has been proclaimed. You've heard the truth. The question becomes, what now will you do with it? What now will you do with the message? Will you continue to reject like that group in the passage that we read this morning? Or will you turn toward Christ and admit that you are that unrepentant sinner, that you're in need of grace, that you need to be saved, and that you want to be saved this morning through Christ? 
God, we thank you for this opportunity to come together this morning. God, as we begin to sing our invitation hymn now, Lord, we pray that you just continue to move amongst these people this morning. Spread your spirit across our sanctuary. Just penetrate the hearts of each and every person here. We thank you for this time in Christ's name.